to the extent that is the American Bar Association Business Law Section's podcast series. Our podcasts provide general information. They aren't a substitute for legal advice from a licensed professional. We offer both standalone and serial podcasts on a variety of topics and welcome your feedback and suggestions at ababusinesslaw.americanbar.org. We hope you enjoy your selection. Hi, and welcome to the Robot Rules podcast. I'm your host, Ted Claypool, and this podcast is brought to you by the American Bar Association Business Law section, in particular, um, in promotion of the book, The Law of Artificial Intelligence and Smart Machines. Um, I am the editor of that book, and we are interviewing various different authors who have written chapters in the book, and today we have a very special um, guest who has written two chapters in the book. Um, It's Judge James Baker, who is the former chief judge of the United States Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces, and Judge Baker is currently the director of the Institute for National Security and Counterterrorism at Syracuse University College of Law. Uh, Judge Baker, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you, Ted. Um, We always start with sort of the same question, which is, um, what is your definition of artificial intelligence? Uh, Fair question. Uh, Because I'm a lawyer, I tend to have 87 different answers to every question (laughs) and 87 different definitions that I use, depending on context. But I'll give you one that I settled on as sort of a central uh, definition. Perfect. AI is a process of machine optimization relying on algorithms, data, and calculation, usually using some form of machine learning. AI is predicated on the notion, as you know, that if you can express an idea, thought, or purpose in numeric fashion, you can code that purpose into software for a machine to perform. AI is an umbrella term comprising the many different techniques and subfields one might use to do this. But there are some common characteristics to most current AI applications, like pattern recognition, multitasking, sensors, and speed. I can go on if you want. Um, at some point, I'll tell you my seven takeaways I would tell, uh, say, to a policy person or a lawyer about sure. what you ought to know about AI. But we can yeah, no, that's perfect. Let's, let's hear it. Okay. I, I have seven takeaways. I'm always thinking since, um, as you can tell, my first name being Judge in uh, my age being 59, <laughs> Um, I'm not going to be the world's leading expert on the technology behind this, uh, and I don't pretend to be. I think my role is to serve as a translator and a bridger, a translator of complex legal concepts and complex technology concepts into plain English, if possible, and a bridger in the terms of trying to reach between the policy community, the law community, and the uh, and the technology community. So I've come up with. Um, uh, eight, as it is, eight uh, takeaways that I would uh, say to a policymaker if I got in the room with them. And this is in the national security context. Excellent. So the first thing I'd say is um, our current state of play with artificial intelligence is that we're, at, we're using narrow AI. And narrow AI is something that is a single task application. And what narrow AI is best at right now is prediction, pattern recognition, anomaly recognition, and link analysis, things like that. 
So you can see already how they would be, uh, these AI applications would be of use for an intelligence collector and analyst, uh, a military uh, logis logistician uh, or planner, that kind of thing. Arrow AI, however, is not good at a lot of things at this state of play. Um, one of the things it's not good at is uh, applying itself to new things it hasn't seen before or new contexts. And in this sense, as you know, people refer to AI being brittle. And brittle means it doesn't, it's not intuitive. If you throw a trolley problem at it or you throw a law of armed conflict problem at it and it's not been trained in that particular problem, it's not going to pick up on the nuance and the changes in a way that a human will. Uh, subtle differences in, in how, the, how the civilian is dressed or whether the civilian is harboring a weapon under the blanket they're carrying. These are things for, for, that are hard for narrow AI to cope with. There's a term uh, people refer to AI having human-level machine intelligence. And I think what people have to realize is it's human-level. It's not human-like. Um, so that's that. The next one is uh, in order to use AI wisely, uh, the um, policymakers and lawyers have to, have to learn to, to uh, address the illities. And the illities come from a MITRE Corporation uh, JSON report. And the illities are reliability, maintainability, accountability, verifiability, evolvability, attackability, and I would add to that interoperability. Until um, the national security engineers and practitioners who are dealing with AI master the illities, uh, it is not, AI is not something I would want to see put in play um, or put in play without careful human control. That leads to the next, uh, the next concept, which is uh, the centaur's dilemma. And, and this is going to be the title of a book I'm uh, completing on AI. Uh, and the centaur's dilemma draws on what DOD calls the centaur model of AI application, which is part human and part machine, rather than part horse and part man. And the centaur's dilemma is to figure out how much of which and each part you should have with a particular application, how much human control, how much machine independence, and, and that's the dilemma. And the, the additional dilemma is uh, the more human control you apply, the less you get the advantage of artificial intelligence, which is machine speed capacity to calculate and predict. Um, and the more we impose a human control model on it, the, you slow it down. And then, of course, the reverse dilemma is the more you allow it to operate at machine speed without human control, the riskier it is and the more unintended the consequences might be. I guess this is a rather long list. Do you mind? I'll continue. Um, no, 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 absolutely. And I love, uh, I will be quoting you on the centaur's dilemma at some point. Okay, please do. Please do. Uh, <laughs> I, I actually like the, and it's centaurs possessive uh, because we have, this is not happening on its own. We are making human choices in how we address the technology. And so we have absolute agency at this time 
in how we build this stuff and what safeguards we put into it. So it's, it's a possessive dilemma, uh, not a plural dilemma. Uh, well, and it is, but it is, I mean, before we go on with the list, I want to explore this just a little bit. I mean, we are it definitely with AI um, and really just with analytics and any number of other um, uh, technological advances that the military has been putting in place recently, um, we, we are becoming centaurs. We are, um, you know, having uh, essentially beings making decisions where um, the technology is either making the decision for us or making, uh, you know, giving us a lot of the basic information and analytics that it takes to make a decision. You know, and then if you move that stuff into more physical beings like drones or, you know, something in the helmet of a, of a soldier or something in the helmet of an entire brigade where they can talk to each other or, or are hearing the same um, uh, uh, machine uh, analysis, you know, it, we're, we're turning us all into um, part machine, part man, and that may well make for better warriors. Uh, it, it may well if we get the centaur's dilemma right. And if we get it wrong, we're going to head to the risk part of the AI rather than the benefit part. I completely well, and it'll be interesting because we're not the only one, we're not the only centaurs involved. There's lots of them out there, you know, in other countries and, and um, you know, in other areas that are that are doing the same thing. So it will be interesting to see at what level um, each army takes or each military uh, uh, draws the line or takes the position. I, I completely agree. We, we, um, we should talk about that in a moment when we talk about law and regulation and the, the whole concept of man in the loop or human in the loop. Yep. Uh, let me just quickly finish my list so I, I can check. Yeah, it out. go ahead. Yeah, I had some specific questions on man in the loop and autonomous killing machines, so we can get to that later. Okay, so, so the, I'll, I'll complete the list. One, so this is if I'm briefing a senior policy person, yep. not necessarily a specialist. Uh, five, we don't know where this is all headed. So you can have debates about this, and, and, and I'm skeptical of anyone who expresses great certainty that they know this will all come out well or all come out evil. Um, and uh, the fact is, no one really knows. Uh, six, AI picks, but it does not conclude. AI is a calculation, and when you're using neural networks, it's, it's essentially a, a series of predictions in, about outcomes, uh, input to output. Um, it's not providing you the answer, and that's something to keep in mind. Uh, seven is the importance of data. Um, machine learning um, at this time uh, requires uh, data, and the more data, the more accurate machine learning. And that means data is not just an issue for Facebook and privacy advocates to worry about. It's a national security good. It's something to be protected like a state secret might be protected, but clearly in a different way. And we are well behind the, the curve on figuring out how to do that, when to do it, so on. And finally, point eight is there's a low threshold to get into the AI game, 
in terms of non-state actors and state actors, but a high threshold for getting AI applications correct because of the cost of energy, the cost of data, and the necessity to have calculating capability. So those are my eight policy takeaways if I had five minutes with um, the right senior official. Well, let me, can I ask you quickly about that last one? I understand the low threshold um, to get in and the high threshold to get it correct, but, but um, do you think that, that all governments working with AI are thinking of it that way, um, or are some just rushing toward a goal and not worrying so much about getting it cor what we would consider correct? Uh, after, uh, so that was a rhetorical question. Um, because uh, we, both, we both share the view that um, while there are many benefits, both national security and other, uh, and, and civilian to AI, there are also significant risks. And I have a sort of standard, uh, this will come as a surprise to you, I have a list of those risks as well. Um, <laughs> God, I love dealing with military people. <laughs> uh, but... but um, I will, a, uh, a, Judge Baker, A, they're always on time, and B, they're always organized. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, we have to cross the line of departure on time where yep. uh, the artillery will not, will not be with you. Um, <laughs> so, so here's my risk, and, and, uh, and I'll, I'll tick through the list, and, and then you can decide if you want to explore it. So one is the uh, risk of unintended consequences. Uh, most technology uh, does not work exactly as intended when created, uh, and, and even when created well, uh, things happen. Uh, think of, a, of, uh, of the uh, space shuttles. Uh, think of our first effort to launch a satellite after Sputnik. Um, it exploded on the uh, platform. Think about our torpedoes entering World War II, which had uh, the um, unfortunate uh, propensity to, one, not explode, and sometimes return to the point of launch. Uh, so that's one. Another risk is the risk of interface, the technology-human interface, which is another aspect of the Centaur's dilemma. And here we can see how humans may not understand what the algorithm or the AI is doing. They may not be able to cope with the interface. Think about the Boeing Max and the inability to deal with that, um, the stall software. Um, and we may not um, appreciate uh, the accuracy of the AI and therefore may misuse it. Rather than using it as a supplementary tool, we may either use it as a decision-making tool or not use it because we don't understand it. So those are all interface risks. Then, of course, there's foreign relations risks. Uh, your friend Larry Summers has predicted that by the, turn, the midpoint of the century, AI will lead to one-third of adult males aged 25 to 54 being unemployed. Whether that's correct or not, uh, clearly AI is going to impact unemployment or employment, and that can lead to instability. Uh, it can lead to new orders of power relationships between small powers and big powers, have powers and have not powers. Um, it can lead to authoritarian regimes having even more power than they already have, uh, CEG China, because AI in many respects is 
is the authoritarian's tool of choice. Um, and then, of course, the thing you were talking about and in, in I was alluding to is the risk of an arms race and, and arms race imperatives. And in any arms race, uh, all states, not just our opponents, but also the United States, will have, a, have an instinct to take safety and security shortcuts in order to beat the other guy to the finish line, especially when we don't know where the finish line is. Uh, and, and we see this as well with the Supermax or with the uh, Boeing Max. They were in a commercial arms race with Airbus, and it led them to cut corners and not do the kind of testing that should have happened ahead of time. Well, if you're going to cut corners for commercial reasons, you're going to cut corners for security reasons because there's no more powerful imperative in government decision-making. Um, right, well, and you saw we've seen, for example, in the lead up to World War One, how, you know, the arms race can lead somebody to decide, well, we believe we're ahead on the arms race, so we simply need to attack now before we lose that lead. And, you know, it takes the... It takes your comment before about low threshold to get in, high to get it correct, um, you know, to, to the place that, uh, that it has what you're talking about here with unintended consequences. So if people are feeling they're in the middle of an arms race, then sometimes something that they think is just good enough <laughs> is, is good enough to, to set off whatever their next, um, their, their next aggressive move will be. I totally agree, and it, it re reintroduces the whole, many, but not all, of the uh, nuclear arms race dynamic uh, with fears about first use and breakout and things like that. I find that this generation of students and perhaps the younger generation of government officials did not grow up, I won't say as you and I did because I think I'm older than you, but did not, not much as I did where nuclear doctrine, mutual assured destruction, first use fears and deterrence theory was part of third and fourth grade education um, and was every day, every year. And, and it was sort of- Yeah, allowed me to sleep at night, I know that. And, and, um, and we, have to re we, we don't have to dust those off and reapply them. We have to ask ourselves anew whether there are metaphors, analogies, and lessons to be learned from the whole Cold War arms race and arms control package to apply to AI. Let me finish my other list, though. My last, yeah. my last risk is AI will compound the existing decision-making pathologies that exist with national security. And, and those pathologies are speed, secrecy, the national security imperative. Um, and what AI does is uh, it truncates um, to the level of machine speed decision-making processes if, in fact, you're relying on AI. And it means that we have to be very careful and very deliberate about how we, make our, how we organize our decision-making um, when we're using uh, AI or cyber tools which may or may not rely on AI. I call this the Turing test of process after the Turing test. And the Turing test of process is a decision-making process that can act at machine speed but is wise enough to know when it shouldn't. And um, I don't see it yet. <laughs> yeah, no, and I don't think any of us do so far. 
Well, way, but Ben, you said copy. what we have what we have now is is narrow, um, and I haven't seen us yet moving. I mean, I see us see us moving to different sorts and complexities of narrow AI, but I haven't seen anyone moving yet toward actual general AI, which is the kind of thing that would be able to uh, to meet your Turing test and and be able to put limits on itself. Oh, I want humans to apply the Turing test. I ah, want, I want that us, is why. I want us to be purposeful and deliberate about when we're going to allow decisions to be driven by technology and when we're going to insist they slow down. Right. Well, that raises another issue, which goes across all of our AI discussions, not just the, the military ones, and that is the black box issue. Um, Many public decisions um, are going to have problems if they can't have some clarity um, of how the decision was made and what factors went into it. Um, if the AI just makes a decision, for example, to, um, to deny certain people uh, loans or to uh, move a, uh, you know, a housing unit in a, or build a housing unit in a certain place, people are going to want to know publicly um, how it made that decision, and AI generally is not set up that way. Um, do you see that being an issue for anything beyond, like, your interface problem um, okay. in the military? Um, well, here, here I would go back to those eight points I would want policymakers to understand. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the black box, of course, posits that in machine learning and with neural networks, we won't know exactly... Uh, which criteria or concepts or image component the AI uh, algorithm acted upon or responded to as it went through its input and output levels, eventually coming out with an output. Uh, but here I think it's important to remember and emphasize to decision makers that the AI is a prediction. Um, it is not a decision. So when it... it when an algorithm runs against your credit score, creates your credit score, it is not announcing that you're credit worthy or not credit worthy. It's creating a probability of risk, a prediction of risk. And I would say that's why the Centaur's dilemma and model is so important, because um, the decision maker has to know that even if the algorithm predicts that I am a terrorist or that I am a person directly participating in hostilities, it is a prediction. And a human should still make the decision as to whether to target me and with what, in what manner. And if, so here's, here's a couple of ethical issues that I think will arise when we have AI algorithms making predictions about who's a military target and who isn't. Um, first of all, you have to ask yourself the ethical question, what, how do we feel about a commander making the decision to target someone based on an uh, input from a machine that the commander doesn't fully understand, can't ask questions of, um, and wouldn't know what to ask if he or she could? So that sounds arbitrary and crazy. On the other hand, we do it all the time uh, in some sense. Uh, judges and jurors rely on uh, techno technology evidence in court, like 
uh, DUI tests or drug tests that they don't fully comprehend what they know instead is the result. Uh, well, and, and Judge Baker, I mean, I would also argue that that's, that's true not just for machines but for people. I mean, in court, you listen to a forensics expert or you listen to, you know, an expert on, on how to bake a proper pie um, for, for the case, and you may or may not know um, un or understand what that person's really talking about or how they got to those conclusions or where they came from, but you have trust ultimately in the, er in the expertise of that person. And it may be similar with the machine. Uh, I, I, I completely agree. I think what the commander is obliged to know is what's the reliability of the machine in terms of how is it, what has been its prediction uh, accuracy in the past, and it, the commander is obliged to know, as is required by law, that it has been subjected to the Article 36 requirements of weapons review by the Department of Defense. Um, and, and I want to, returning to that, when an analyst turns to the commander and says, in, it is my judgment that this person is a combatant, um, or they say it is likely that this person is a combatant, that is a per percentage prediction as well. Um, the difference is the commander can ask the, the analyst, what makes you think that, and essentially look at the algorithm criteria that the analyst is using in determining that the person is a lawful target. With, with AI algorithms, we don't have that opportunity. So, the, it, so here's what I worry about in part. I think it will be very hard for a commander, if we put them in this spot, to not take a shot if, you, if the algorithm is making a prediction that 76% says this person's a target. And I think it will be very hard for the commander to override the algorithm with his own commander's intuition if the algorithm says there's a 30% shot this person is a, is a lawful target. But the commander may well have situational awareness in judgment that informs a counterintuitive decision to that that the algorithm predicted. So what I worry about is getting ourselves in a box, not a black box, but a different kind of box, um, where the, the, the AI predictions are boxing in sound decision making. Um, we're not there yet. I don't want the audience to freak out and, and think that we've moved, moved further ahead than, than we have. But um, I, I time and time again return to the importance of process uh, being the essential ingredient here, not necessarily substantive law um, in terms of getting this right. Right, but there are a couple, based on what you're talking about, there are a couple levels of process issues with that judgment question. I mean, if the AI says, we believe this person to be um, an enemy combatant, and the commander, um, using his or her judgment, says, I don't believe that to be true. Um, you know, first of all, you have the questioning of the commander's own judgment as to whether he or she, you know, should be or can be overriding what the machine's saying. But second of all, afterwards, if that person turns out to be an enemy combatant, um, you have the, the um, essentially the leadership 
um, questioning the decisions of the commander, which may be counterintuitive or could be judgment-based. So, I mean, there's a number of different levels of, of this process that you're talking about that could be problematic. Correct. Or, uh, or we can address the process and um, minimize the risk. Yes, and, we, and knowing as we come into it what the, you know, what some of those risks are should make, you know, should make those decisions easier to make and easier to defend and less likely that, that a commander is going to have to defend his or her decision. And, and I completely agree. And just to be clear for the audience, by commander we mean uh, not, not just a military commander making a targeting decision, but I'm using that to describe a national security decision maker relying on AI to make a decision, not relying... Well, and you can go broader than that, Judge. I mean, it certainly also applies to a radiologist whose AI has told them that they see a spot on this, you know, on this lung, and the radiologist doesn't agree. I mean, it really applies not only into the, the national security side, but really to every place where AI is being uh, used and depended upon. Yep, totally agree. Um, could I make a point about, a couple points about law generally in this area? Please. Because uh, I, I fear our time is probably winding down. But uh, yeah. I think I would like people, so a lot of folks are focused on uh, autonomous weapon systems and uh, lots of very finite and specific issues. Um, I would like to L, uh, return people to a higher altitude and make, make a couple points about law. First, law serves three purposes. It provides the substantive authority to act in the left and right boundaries of that action. It provides essential process, and it provides uh, legal values and embeds legal values in, in national security decision-making such as the values in the Constitution, values embedded in the Fourth Amendment, Fifth Amendment, Sixth Amendment, First Amendment, and so on. There is a tendency with AI, as in so many other areas, to focus alone on the first purpose. What should the substantive authority be? Should we allow for autonomous weapon systems or not? Should we allow this AI application or that AI application? As I indicated before, I think we need to spend as much time, if not more, on the process questions. Because the process, uh, we're going to, the law will never keep pace with technology. And in this particular area, the technology is particularly revolutionary. And it's going to move along in exponential steps, not linear steps. So it's much better that we create a process that causes humans to make purposeful decisions along the way, rather than try to predict what those decisions should be now in terms of substance. And then I think we need to spend a whole lot more time than we are talking about values. And by here, I mean the values embedded in the Constitution. And these values play out with how we use data, when we use data, whose data do we use, that sort of thing. And I don't really feel like that debate's alive and well right now. Um, and, and if your <laughs> podcast can stimulate such a debate, uh, then we will have served a public good. Absolutely. Well, and let me ask you, just based on that question quickly, what, I mean, when you talk about a process for purposeful decisions, how does that, 
look in reality? How does that look in in the United States or in the United States national security apparatus? I uh, I don't know how it looks because I can't see it um, because it's either not there or it is not um, visible. Right. I, I I suspect it's it's mostly the not their part of it rather than the not. Well, no, but how would you? I mean, if you were to design it and just and oh, yeah, plop sure. it into to it, how would how would it look? How would you make it? Um, sure. How would you make that work? That process um, for purposeful decisions. Sure, I'd make. Here's some some of the things I would consider. Uh, I would um, have a interagency working group. I would create basically create an NSC process for emerging technologies, including artificial intelligence, uh, synthetic biology, and potentially quantum computing. And it would include within it a whole, whole series of actors and agencies that aren't ordinarily at the national security, national security table. NIST, for, for example, is a critical actor in this area. And when was the last time you heard of NIST being at a principal's committee meeting or a deputy's committee meeting? The answer is never. Uh, but they're an essential actor in this sphere. And it needs to be at a level, um, putting aside current issues about the present um, NSC process and dynamics in Washington, um, the uh, authority to address the policy and legal questions with respect to emerging technologies has to reside at a level that is is above the interagency process. So that that puts the stress on making it a presidential level thing. Um, And then you have to say, so is that something that OSTP should lead, the National Science Advisor or the National Security Advisor? Um, And I would say I care less about who it is and more about the fact that they are actually devoting their time to it Um, and that, that there is a special person, a special advisor, who holds accountability and responsibility for this. I already know the 43 questions I would ask the lawyers group to address. And I would bet you dollars for donuts that the lawyers group not only hasn't met on this topic, but is not addressing these issues. And we know what they are. We know what many they are. To use the Donald Rumsfeld term, there are known, uh, known knowns and unknown knowns or whatever the heck that thing is. Yeah, known unknowns. There are unknown unknowns and known unknowns. And, and we already know what many of the, the legal issues and ethical issues are. Um, and rather than circle around it and wring our hands, we should start answering them. And if you get them wrong, then adjust, pivot, and go to the next answer. Um, and we shouldn't do what we did with cybersecurity and spend 10 to 20 years saying this is very hard, this is very hard. Um, we should make choices, and if they're ill-informed or don't turn out as we wish, then we should change them. It's all about purposeful and meaningful decision, um, and, and it's not clear. So there's some wonderful people in government who are working on this, and a lot of them are at DOD. Bob Work, who's no longer at DOD, was obviously one of the principal people who got this, but the Department of Defense should not make national policy any more than litigation between Apple and FBI should make national policy on encryption. National policy should be something that is made with the input of all the actors at the national level, and in best case, embedded in legislation, uh, 
because that's the democratic process, and it will also mean it's a more lasting uh, solution to the policy issues presented. Um, so Terrific. That's probably not as detailed an answer. I do have a section in, in uh, not in your book, but in the other book uh, that I have on AI on what a process would look like. So it's a more detailed answer to the question you presented to me. Oh, good. Well, thank you. And hopefully um, those who have been listening to this will not only seek out the law of artificial intelligence and smart machines, but also the various other books that Judge Baker has, um, including Common Defense, uh, National Security Law for Perilous Times, and, uh, and the upcoming Centaur's Dilemma. So what's, what's the name of the book that has this particular thing in it? I'm sorry? The, what's, what's the book that has this process oh, in it? Oh, uh, it, it's The Centaur's Dilemma. Centaur's Dilemma. Okay, good. Which um, should, let me, let's, yeah. let's, I really, there's so much I want to get with, with you on, including lawful ruses and unlawful perfidy um, and a number of different concepts that come up in your, your chapters in the book. But um, I, we really probably need to close this out um, and be uh, respectful of your time. So I'd like to, I'd like to ask you, what is your favorite application of AI? Um, I'm happy to do that, and I think you'll be surprised, uh, as I was, when I came up with it, um, because it's, it's not a traditional national security application, but it's one that illustrates uh, the promise of artificial intelligence in uh, national security areas as well as others. And this has to do with um, the artificial intelligence application that Google is testing in India to identify um, diabetic red, red, uh, I can't even say it. Uh, Retinitis. Retinopathy. Retinopathy, uh, yeah. And cause blindness. And it turns out that in India, this probably doesn't come as a surprise, but um, the ophthalmologist to person ratio in, in India is not a strong one. Um, it's something like a um, one to every 11 million people or something like that. And mm -hmm. um, this type of blindness is quite prevalent. It also turns out that, uh, so the problem is, if you wait around to get in to see an ophthalmologist, um, one, you're never going to get in, and two, you're probably going to be blind by the time you get in. So the AI application uh, is, is maximizing what narrow AI can do. It looks at everyone who, who signs up and based on pattern recognition identifies that very small subset of people who have the, uh, the indications of being on the path to blindness. And it turns out this is a great way to screen and determine who should then have the time with the ophthalmologist who can verify that assessment. Now, there's problems with the AI because there's false positives and that sort of thing, but it's a great example of how AI can be used to augment human decision, and so therefore a great example of the Centaur's model at work. Uh, it also shows you that AI is a promising thing and not just this scary thing that leads people to think about robots and things like that. And, um, and finally, it does have a national security hook because the one area where we get an F, I think, in how we have planned for national security after 9-11 is in the area of public health. 
we know there's going to be pandemics in the century ahead, and we know there will be terrorist attacks, and they may or may not be uh, using biological agents or chemical agents, but we know there will be a pandemic, and we need to get the public health house in order. And AI is something that can help do that um, by detecting patterns in lab analysis, detecting patterns in vi hospital visits, and all those sorts of things. So that's my example. And then um, I'd like to leave with you with just one quote. Um, sure. And, and I'm sure you've heard this before many times, but what I like it about it is that it captures well uh, the cusp of the moment we are in. And this is Stephen Hawking's quote about the rise of powerful AI be either the best or the worst thing ever to happen to humanity. We do not yet know which. Now, people have said, oh, hysterical, hysterical, um, don't get so carried away. But what Hawking captures is the notion that we're at a fork in the road, and we might fork left, we might fork right, um, and we control our own destiny here. So whether you believe in existential risk in AI or not, um, I'm saying you got to say there is a fork in the road here that we're at, we're at standing at, and we can either jump in and put proper regulation around this stuff and use it wisely and well, or we can hope for the best and see what happens. And uh, you can guess which camp I'm in. I can, but I also can look at the past and guess uh, what we're likely to be doing. <laughs> Which unfortunately we on an optimistic note. right puts us puts us potentially in the wrong camp. But I I'm with you. I think I think ultimately responsible people will be uh, will be looking at this and and uh, helping design it. I also have a book in process now on uh, on on legal changes we could make to uh, to help ease the way toward this kind of technology. So I'm I am optimistic as you are. So that. Judge Baker, thank you so much for talking to us today. We really appreciate it. And thank you, everyone, for listening to the Robot Rules podcast from the American Bar Association. Um, we look forward to talking to you next time. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Take care. You too. Thank you for listening to the ABA Business Law Sections podcast series to the extent that the section offers a robust collection of content. To explore more about this topic, or to learn about joining the section, visit ambar.org slash bizlaw. That's B-I-Z-L-A-W.